You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. I am Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money, a Her Money episode that I have to tell you I am so excited about. When we first started doing this podcast, we sat down and made a list of all the wonderful women and other guests that we wanted to have on the show. And Brene Brown, who I'm sure you all know because she has crafted a TED Talk on the power of vulnerability that has been seen 25 million times and has written multiple New York Times bestsellers. Brene was right at the top of the list, and it took us a little while to get her, but she will be here in just a couple minutes, and we are going to talk about one of her favorite topics and an important one where your money is concerned, which is bravery, how managing money requires us to be brave. And and by brave, I mean we need to tackle things that we're not necessarily good at. We need to fail or fall apart, and then we need to get up and do it over and over and over again. And the reason that we have to be so brave where finances are concerned is that money's just not optional. It's interesting. I've been putting the finishing touches on my own upcoming book, which is called Age Proof. I wrote it with Dr. Michael Roizen, who is the director of wellness at the Cleveland Clinic. The subtitle is How to Live Past 100 Without Running Out of Money or Breaking a Hip, which tells you just about everything that you need to know about age proof. But in one of our chapters, we talk about why the topics of health and finances have the ability to stress us out so much. And the reason is that they're not optional. You can't just stop eating. You can't just stop spending money. You can stop spending a certain amount of money. But these are not parts of your life that you can choose not to engage in if you want to have a long and prosperous and full and enjoyable life. These are areas where you have to engage. And they're areas where many of us, particularly I feel where money is concerned, where we feel so vulnerable. And and that's why I'm so excited to have Brene on the show today, because I think when it comes to teaching us all how to deal with our vulnerabilities. There is no one better in the world. And so as Sarah Bareilles says, and you all know I love Sarah Bareilles, but as she says in one of my favorite songs, we want to see you be brave. Brene, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jean. I'm excited to be with you. I'm so excited to have you here. I I was telling everybody before you got on the line that when we made our list of the people we wanted on the show, you were right at the top. And one of the ways that everybody knows you, of course, is that your TED Talk 
is one of the five most viewed TED Talks in the entire world in the history of TED Talks. So what what is it about this that you think continues to resonate with people about the power of vulnerability? You know, I th- I've thought about this a lot. I think what it is is that I give language to things that we all experience, really deeply human experiences that, as a researcher, my job is to kind of understand, see connections that people, that we normally don't see, and then give them language. And so a lot of times when I talk to people about the TED Talk, what they'll say is, I already knew everything you said, I just didn't know there was a word for it, and I didn't know, I thought I was the only one. Um, and so I think you know, vulnerability is just a, you know, to be human is to be vulnerable. And so I think to to put some language around it and talk about it and reframe it as, first of all, not optional, but as an act of courage, I think resonates with us because it's what it means to be human. Well, one of those not optional things that makes people feel so vulnerable is the whole world of money, the the issues that they have to deal with when they deal with their finances. Why does that have the ability to cut us so deeply? Oh, man, like I, you know, this is my 15th year doing this research, and I started researching shame. You know, my first research was really around connection, shame, fear, scarcity, then I got into vulnerability, then I got into courage, worthiness, and I have never in my career researched a single topic that was not wound so tightly around money that you don't know where one ends and the other begins. Um, I think, you know, money and shame, money and scarcity, this, you know, idea that am I enough, do I make enough, do I, you know, is my work enough? And then vulnerability is, you know, there's, of course, a lot of vulnerability around money and finance. But really, I think the biggest trigger for people around vulnerability and money is, and I have it too. I mean, oh, my God, I have it. I really have it too. Um, I don't understand everything that I feel like I'm supposed to understand not understanding puts me at risk. I don't feel like I'm smart enough. And I don't feel like I have enough to warrant being curious about it. I, it it's so interesting to hear you say that. I'm, you just put your finger on the thing that I love most about my job as a financial reporter because I have those same feelings that I don't know enough, that I don't have the answers, that I'm supposed to have the answers. And my job, picking up the phone and calling people and saying, explain this to me, kind of gives me a free pass in that area. You know, it, it. I have the license that everybody should have to just say, I don't get this, explain it. Yeah, and that is like, that can be so, I remember the first time, like when Steve and I first got jobs, I mean, I'll be totally honest, like we, I was coming out of my PhD, he was coming out of medical school, you know, we had literally $200,000 in school debt. Um, and I remember getting our first jobs and someone saying, well, you should talk to a financial planner, you know, because you've got, you've got a lot of debt, a lot of student debt, and um, you need to be thoughtful about what you're doing. And we were renting a house and, you know, what do you want to do? And we had old cars and should we get new cars? And we don't know. And I remember Steve, we were looking at each other and we're like, what do you think? And he's like, oh, God, I, I don't know. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to, do you? And he goes, 
I think we're supposed to have a lot more money than we have now in order to ask. I don't think we're, you know, like we didn't think we had permission to even be curious. Yeah, I think that's that causes people to stick their heads in the sand. And then the years go by and you're still vulnerable. So in a broader sense, whether you're feeling that way about your money or whether you're feeling that way about something else, how do you get yourself to, A, face the vulnerabilities and then take them on? So, you know, I think a couple things, like I'll talk generally about vulnerability in itself, and then I'll talk about kind of how I see it play out in the research around money. Um, You know, I think the biggest issue that we have in our culture, and not just our culture, but, you know, I do work all over the world, is there's nary a culture that it does not, you know, train people to believe that vulnerability is weakness. And so the first thing we have to do is reframe the fact that vulnerability is not weakness. Most of us were raised that way. Most of us were raised to armor up, be tough, suck it up. Um, And really, if it's super uncomfortable or makes you feel uncertain or ambivalent, just don't do it or just close your eyes and barrel through it. And the truth is that vulnerability is not weakness. It is, in fact, our best measure of courage. You know, 150,000 pieces of data, I cannot find a single example of a courageous act that is not completely defined by vulnerability. We asked thousands of people, what is vulnerability to you? And the answers ranged from the first date after my divorce, trying to get pregnant after my second miscarriage, sitting with my wife who has stage four breast cancer, making plans for our kids, starting my own business, saying I love you first, um, asking for a raise. Are those things terrifying? Are they, do they feel uncertain? Do you feel exposed? Yes. But is that weakness? No. And so the first thing I think we have to do is that when Steve and I are sitting there at the dining room table saying, gosh, should we talk to somebody and get some you at least ask questions and get curious about money and how it works and what's, you know, because I think the pressure people feel, and I know you know this, you know, because this is your expertise. The one thing that we all know, and this is what makes it suck so bad, the one thing everyone knows about money is that time is a huge variable. Mm -hmm. So you're feeling this huge crush around time, but then it's like, should we talk to someone and like, no, I don't think we're ready yet. And that's where you have to say, you have to name it and say, you know what? It feels really vulnerable, but I think we should be brave and just sit down and ask questions. And if somebody looks back at us and says, I only deal with really rich people and I don't know why you're worried about, you know, the change in the bottom of your purse, then that's on them, not on us. We were still being brave. That That's right. It's, if somebody ever says that to you, then they are not the right planner for you. And there are plenty of other planners or advisors or simply smart friends who have been through it before who could potentially be a first line of question answers for you. There, there's a lot of information out there. I was taken by the fact that in, in your, your latest book, in, which is Rising Strong, you basically equate vulnerability with bravery, that in order to go through it, you just have to be brave time and time again. Yeah, I mean, the definition of vulnerability that emerged from the data is really straightforward. It's uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Tell me any single thing that has to do with money, from investing, saving, and earning, 
that is not completely defined by uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Right. It's in the definition of money. It's in the DNA of money, right? It doesn't exist without risk. You know, that's investing. That's what you have to get yourself to take on. But it's very difficult for a lot of people. And I'm wondering if in the research there were ways that you found to be effective to get people to take that first step or that second step. Absolutely. I think one of the most key pieces, and this is kind of the heart of Rising Strong, is men and women who are the most courageous, not only in their choices, but when they fall, which, you know, if you're brave enough, often enough, you're going to go down. Mm -hmm. Men and women who are not only brave enough to, to risk vulnerability, but can get back up after they get knocked around a little bit. One of the things that they share in common, which I think is huge when it comes to your work, Jean, is to always, always examine, pull apart, and reality check the stories we're making up in our heads. So when we feel struggle, when we feel scared about something, intimidated, not sure, or vulnerable about something, we are neurobiologically wired to make up a, our brain wants a story to explain the discomfort. I mean, physically, the, the brain needs a story. Mm-hmm. So you hear people say, oh, you know, we're wired for story. We are wired for story. And so if we give the brain a story, it gives us a chemical reward. So here's an example. You know what? I don't really understand what's happening with my university savings plan. I'm going to call Jean and ask her. And then I, I start to feel nervous, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, and I make up a story. You know what? Jean's going to think I'm stupid. She's going to be like, okay, you're a university professor and you don't understand the answer. This Jean's going to think less of me if I call her. The one thing that men and women do that have high levels of courage and resilience is they stop in those moments where they know they're emotionally hooked by something and they say, okay, what am I making up right now? What story am I making up right now? I'm making up that Jean will think I'm stupid. She'll think less of me. She won't respect me. And then I have a chance to reality check that story. So the truth about asking for help with money is that the people who have the most need the most help and ask the most. I mean, like, people, everybody needs help. There's no one that's doing it on their own. Everyone needs help with money, every single person. Whether you have $10 or $10 million, we need help. And so you can reality check those questions, that story you're making up, and then say, okay, I'm making up a story about this because I'm fearful. And you make being brave a conscious choice. Yeah, I like to think of it as the negative radio in my head sometimes. And I think that more, I think it's more of a problem, quite frankly, for women, that, that we have these negative fantasies that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And if we can just get ourselves back to what is fact, we can move beyond it. I think that is exactly right. And here's what's tricky is that negative radio, those stories, when you give the brain a story, it chemically rewards you. You get kind of like a, oh, yeah, great idea. That's right. Don't, you know, you're you're right on track. And it rewards you regardless of the accuracy of the story. And the thing about men and women and money that I think is really interesting is I think women women have a lot of self-talk because we, most of us have been socialized to think that money is not our strong suit. And then for men, the biggest shame trigger is perceptions of weakness or not knowing. 
So you've got me and Steve will use us as an example. And I'm like, um, I don't really understand what it is. And I'm not even sure it's my business to understand. And I'm being, you know, hypothetical, yeah. but that's what's playing in my head. And then Steve is like, I should already know this. I should, you know, this is like, this is a criticism of me if I don't have all these answers. Where the reality check story is, you know what? I know a lot of things. This I don't know about. Just like people ask me for help in areas where I'm an expert, Gene's an expert in this. For Steve, the story is, I should already know this. Well, you know, you're a pediatrician and you know a lot of stuff. You don't know this. And how would you feel if a parent came to you and their child's been sick for six months but they haven't been coming to you because they were supposed to know how to fix it? because they're a parent. And he's like, I see it every day. And it's so dangerous. I'm like, exactly. We can't do the same thing with money. And it's very, very dangerous when it comes to your money. I want to talk a little bit more about shame and how shame is different than guilt. But before we do that, let me just tell everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Dr. Brene Brown, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or having a baby or starting a career. And again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. So there are a lot of different words, Brene, floating in this conversation. We've got shame. We've got blame. We've got vulnerability. We've got bravery. Shame at its core, I know you have found, is not an effective tool for changing behavior. How do we deal with it? You know, I think the most helpful thing to parse out a little bit here is shame, guilt, humiliation, embarrassment. So shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. And these are the two we kind of mix up all the time. So I'll give you an example. I get really frustrated and say something really hurtful to Steve, my husband. Is my self-talk, God, I'm a bad person, or that was a really terrible choice. And And it seems like a small difference, but the difference is huge because what we know is that shame this idea that there's something wrong inherently with us, not that we've made a bad choice, but that we're bad, is highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, suicide, eating disorders, and guilt, this idea where we can identify like, you know, I'm a good person. I made a really crappy choice. Guilt is highly correlated with the opposite People who are very use more guilt than shame have lower rates of addiction, depression, aggression, violence. And so shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. And so a lot of us, when we are in a position around money, feel shame. We feel I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I don't make enough. Um, where guilt is, you know what, I'm really working my butt off here. I don't know a lot about this, but that doesn't make me a bad person. It just makes me someone that needs to learn more about this. Carl Richards, I don't know if you caught this. I'm sure you did. Actually, the New York Times columnist um, wrote a column imposing a no shame, no blame rule for couples and money that was inspired by your research. So as you parse this for us, 
Can you bring blame into the conversation as well? <laughs> yeah. Blame, you know, like raise your hand if you're a blamer. I'm a total blamer. Like something goes wrong, I want to immediately know whose fault it is. Even if it's my own fault, I'd rather it be my fault than no one's fault. Because well, you know how they define blame in research? It's simply defined as the discharging of pain and discomfort. And it has zero relationship with accountability. In fact, a lot of researchers find that blame and accountability are negatively correlated. People who blame more have a tendency to actually hold people accountable less. So blame is just an, um, a, you know, an angry emotion discharge. Well, I can totally see that. I mean, my, my two teenagers are home this summer. One graduated from college. One, one is still in college. But, you know, they have a bad day at work, and they come home, and they fire on whatever they feel will be able to take it, right? You just yes. you take it in from some source, and you just spit it back out at, at the nearest target. Yes, and unfortunately, normally, when people use blame like that, they feel they fire off on the people with whom they feel the most emotional and physical safety. So we're the crappiest to the people we love the most. Yes, that would be your mother, right? I mean, (laughs) 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 well, and and I do this, and, and often for you know, for adults, it's our partners. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, so and I do it blame, to my own mother too. So by the way, guilty yes. as charged. And me too. I mean, blame is, so blame is just the discharging of pain and discomfort. Accountability is by definition a brave and vulnerable process. It is, here's my experience of what happened. Here's how I feel. And here's what's not working. And here's what I need. I mean, it's hard to hold people accountable. It's hard to be held accountable. It's brave to hold people accountable, and it's brave to stand up and say, I made a mistake, I was wrong, I'll take responsibility for that. Blame takes no courage at all. It's easy. It's easy. It's a cheap shot. Accountability is an act of courage and vulnerability. How can we then combat money shame. You talk in the book about shame resilience. And I and I think that what we're essentially trying to give people here are some rules of engagement. When we're in this world of our finances, how can we function more effectively knowing that these emotional triggers are all around us all the time? So here's, here's what I would say. Stay, you know, this is number one, stay keenly aware of your emotions. Because when they get hooked, they take over. It's not like thinking rules emotions. We are not thinking beings who on occasion feel. We are emotional beings. So if you're hooked and you've got emotion wrapped all around you, you are probably not making the best decision that you want to be making. The biggest key to shame resilience is exactly what we're doing right now, and that is normalizing and having conversations so that people you know, the two strongest words you can say to someone in shame is me too. And so having conversations like this where people understand, A, you're not alone, B, these really hard feelings of vulnerability and shame and, you know, worry about, do I look stupid if I ask questions? To normalize, no, you don't, that's me too. I don't care how much money someone has, people struggle with this. And there are people who leverage that struggle. And so to normalize, I mean, the biggest thing about shame resilience is reality checking the message that you're alone, that it's just you. Shame only works if you believe you're alone. 
the minute you know that it's not just you that's worried about talking about money, but it's you and me and Jean and 10 million other women, then you're like, oh, okay, well, if it's not just me, then it's up to me to have the courage just to you know, broach the subject, sit down with somebody and ask questions. And so these kind of conversations, the, you know, empathy, normalizing, putting language, that's how you get out of shame. Well, I think that is a really, really powerful place to to leave it today because the entire reason that this show exists is me too. It's we all have trouble having these conversations. I have trouble having these conversations. Every woman I know has trouble having these conversations, at least from time to time. And we all need to be there to support each other so that we don't feel as vulnerable in this really, really important area. Um, so thank you. Amen. Thank you. And thank you for fighting the fight. I think you're brilliant. Well, thank you. And thanks for the work you're doing too. And wrapping language around things I don't understand. So I have very much personally benefited um, for your, from your honest conversations that you have, because to me, the smarter someone is and the more expertise they have, the simpler they can make things. And, I know you have a really deep bench of knowledge because you make things simple to understand, and that's I'm so grateful for that. Oh, well, thank you. I hope you'll uh, you'll come back again sometime soon, and that we see each other in person as well. I would love that. All right, all right, Brene Brown. Thank you so much. You bet. My pleasure. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. And Kelly Hultgren, our associate producer, has joined me in the studio. We're here to take your questions. How are people reaching out to us? They are reaching out through Facebook, on Twitter, through our site. You can email us, gene at genechatsky.com. We also have a little message box on the podcast page on genechatsky.com that you can send me a note. So please keep them coming. We, we love hearing from you. Okay. Awesome. What do we have? We have a question from Amy on Facebook. She has $175,000 and she's wondering what she can use to give her a monthly income. Oh, okay. That's a good question. She's got a nest egg of $175,000. She didn't specify, but my head went to annuities. Well, yeah, annuities are one way to do it. So if, boy, okay, I'm going to give you some general advice, Amy, but if you are headed into a change of life kind of a phase, if, if this is retirement for you, this is a big amount of money. It's a big decision. I want you to sit down with a financial advisor and you don't have to have a financial advisor who is on your permanent payroll. You can go to the Garrett Planning Network, which is a network of fee-only financial advisors that are willing to charge by the hour. These are the times of life, these inflection points where it's really, really worth sitting down with somebody. But Kelly said annuities, and, and she's right. What she's thinking of are immediate income annuities. And essentially, you take a chunk of money, you use it to buy a paycheck that will be with you for either a certain number of years or for the rest of your life. The amount of money that an annuity will translate to, you can go to a website called Abaris, A-B-A-R-I-S. It's myabaris.com is the website. It has a, a nice longevity calculator as well as other 
tools for looking at immediate annuities. And you can essentially see what the money will translate into. And full disclosure, this website was started by uh, a couple of kids from the University of Pennsylvania. That's my alma mater, and I'm an, I'm an advisor to the company, so I, I know a little bit about it. But you can run their calculator, which is free, and, and figure out what this will translate into. The payout on annuities is based, as I said, on your lifespan. So the younger you are, the less your monthly paycheck is going to be. But interest rates also play a big role. And interest rates are so low right now that I wouldn't want to see you take this big chunk of money and convert it all right now. You might be better off investing it for a while, allowing it to grow, and annuitizing down the road. The other thing that you can look at is something called the 4% rule. And the 4% rule essentially says if you invest in a diversified portfolio, and we're talking roughly 60% stocks and 40% bonds, and you pull no more than 4% of your money out each year, that chunk of money should last you 30 years. So that's another way to use that money to produce an income for yourself. And then every financial services company on the planet these days knows that income solutions are what people want. And so there are income-producing mutual funds. You can invest your money in dividend-paying stocks. All of these are ways to produce an income. It's a complicated landscape, which is why, again, I don't want you to make this choice quickly or rashly. I want you to sit down and talk to somebody. I didn't know mutual funds. Mutual funds, uh-huh. income-producing mutual funds. And for more on annuities, you can listen to our episode with Jane Bryant Quinn. Yes, absolutely. And her book is a great book, a great resource for anybody who's looking to make their money last. That's actually the title of the book. Excellent. And we have an email from a longtime fan of yours who asked to remain anonymous. Okay. She has two children. Her husband and her do not have a will in place, and it sounds like it's a point of contention for her and her husband. She writes, every time we contact an attorney and attempt to start the process, he does not follow through. Should I create my own will and continue to try and move him forward? Absolutely. You should create your own will. And maybe the attorney is just getting in the way. There is, it's great if you can sit down with an attorney and put a full estate plan in place, a will, Durable powers of attorney for finance and healthcare, which allow people to make financial and healthcare decisions on your behalf if you're not able to. A living will, which tells a doctor or a hospital if you want life support. All of those things are important. But when you have children, not having a will means that if something happens to both of you, those kids are going to go through some sort of court-oriented guardianship proceeding to determine who takes care of them. And they may not end up with the person that you want them to end up with. So go get a will-making software program. It could be Willmaker. It could be Legal Zoom. These are fine wills. Just get one done And then if you can get your husband to a lawyer, do it later on. But just make sure that you've got something in place. Now, let's say their finances are combined. Can she account for his money on her will for the children without his consent? This is why people need lawyers, because if one of them were to die, everything passes to the other one, unless the will stipulates otherwise, and things start to get complicated. Go get a software program, make a simple will, 
and sometimes this strategy works when your husband really, really wants to get you a gift and he is without a clue about what to get you. This is what you want. You want peace of mind. And, and that means you want a meeting with a lawyer. The lawyer will come to the house. It doesn't have to be onerous or difficult or take hours and hours of time or cost a ton of money. It can be relatively simple. So tell your husband that's what you want for your birthday. Give him a nice smile. Give him a nice hug. Tell him you love him and hope he goes with it. I think that's a great way to go. Okay. All right. Perfect. Thanks. And thanks for your questions, everybody. We love this part of the show. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. In this week's Thrive segment, I've got a new poll from GoBankingRates.com, and it shows one in three Americans worry about money all the time. All the time. That is no way to live. So we're going to run through three of your biggest financial fears and how you can just move them out of your way. First up, outliving your money in retirement. We discussed this with Jane Bryant Quinn on episode 13. Longevity rates are rising. The average lifespan for a woman today is 83, and that's average, which means half of all women live past that. The solution is to right-size your life. By the time you retire, you want to aim to have put away 10 times your annual income. That, coupled with Social Security, should enable you to maintain your standard of living for at least another 30 years. It's easier to do if you right-size, which means lowering expenses so you can save significantly more. Fear number two, losing a spouse or losing a partner. If you suffer from this fear, it means you're either worried about losing that person's income or that person's expertise. If it's income you're dependent on, you may want to try to boost your own income, but an easier, quicker solution is to be sure that you have enough life insurance. Generally, a term insurance policy, which is much cheaper than permanent life insurance, that covers 8 to 10 times your annual living expenses, plus enough to pay off the mortgage, will do it. If it's expertise that you're fearful of losing, it's time to become more involved in the family finances overall. And fear number three, becoming a bag lady. Don't laugh. Bag lady syndrome is a term that has been around since the 1970s. And according to research from Allianz, it affects over a third of women who earn more than $200,000 a year. If you have it, Chances are pretty good it's because you saw somebody you know, a parent, an aunt, an older friend, struggle with money toward the end of her life. You need to separate fear from fantasy by using personal data points about your life that you know to be true. As Brene Brown told us, silence the negative voice inside your head by reminding yourself, I'm saving 15% for retirement. I only have 12 years until my mortgage is paid off. Self-talk works for money confidence, too. Okay, recap. Whether your fear is outliving your money, losing your financial support, or becoming a bag lady, notice that all three solutions come down to being proactive. Save more, earn more, and remind yourself that you're doing the best that you can. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. A big thank you to the wonderful Brene Brown for really opening up and and sharing a piece of her life with all of us. That's what it means to 
have these conversations about our money on a regular basis, whether you do it with me here on the podcast or you do it with your friends, your mother, your sister, the other people in your life. And we're going to continue next week. We'll be talking with Sarah Newcomb. She's a behavioral economist and she's the author of a new book called Loaded, which takes a slightly different dive into this world of our money and our emotions. Really interesting stuff. So I hope that you'll come back for this. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. Leave us a review. We are trying to make this the show that you want to listen to every single week. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.